0: Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor, and this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana, over the past week, and we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers, as well as answer any questions that students have Posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So first thing we have for class night is not a question, but some tips from me on dishwasher temps. And the different types of dishwashers, this is domain for, I kind of teach this section in my class, Kitchen Topics. And with the dishwashers, it gets tricky because usually we kind of know the basics of, you know, thinking about high-temp dishwashers. They're sterilizing with high temperatures, low-temp dishwashers. They're going to be sterilizing with chemicals. But there's lots of different things that you want to know about each one. So here are kind of the key points to take away for each type of dishwasher. So First one is the high temp dishwashers. So here you want to remember that the wash is 150 to 160 degrees Fahrenheit, and the rinse is 180 degrees Fahrenheit. And to remember the temperatures here, I like to think that, you know, because we're sterilizing with heat, I need to get up at least above, you know, the cooking temp to kill chicken bacteria, which is 165. So it makes sense that that final sanitizing rinse, rinse is going to be 180 degrees because it's going to kill all the bacteria. And this is going to be really great for really soiled dishes, lots of fat and grease because the temperature is so high it's going to not only sterilize but melt a lot of things too. Then we have the low temp dishwasher. So remember we're sterilizing with the chemicals. So in the low-temp dishwashers, the wash and rinse needs to be between 120 to 140. So hot, but that's not going to kill on its own. It's not going to kill the bacteria from the chicken. It's going to require chemical sterilizing agents. You also need to scrub the dishes beforehand before putting them into the machine too. And this one has a lower energy requirement than the high-temp because You're just not getting that high in the temperature. And so typically, we are using three main chemicals here. The first one is chlorine. Chlorine needs to be at 50 to 100 ppm or parts per million minimum with 10 seconds of contact time. Iodine can also be used, and that needs to be 12.5 parts per million minimum, 30 seconds of contact. And then you can also use coronary, which needs to be 150 to 200 parts per million um, in the concentration there. So typically on the exam, they're going to be asking you for the parts per million of chlorine. That's going to be the most common one that you're using. Think right. Chlorine you use in a pool to sanitize the water. We can sanitize with the dishes too. And so I would definitely know the main chemical is Chlorine at 500, not 500, sorry, 50 to 100 parts per million is the big one to know. And this is a great topic, too, to make a chart out of so you can kind of compare. If you're in the Kitchen Topics recorded course or the Signature course, you guys get my study guide on this. Next question we have is off of a question we did last week, but I want to address it. Of I had a student who was saying, in the comments. I can never figure out hidden costs. Do you mind explaining it? Of course. So hidden costs, I like to describe hidden costs as we're kind of fluffing up our price because we don't know what costs might come down the road. Maybe, you know, you are a muffin person. What am I thinking? A baker? A muffin person. I'm thinking muffin man. That's why you're the muffin man, the baker. And you're making your muffins, everything's on schedule, and then you drop a tray, right? Unexpected cost. Or what if there's a storm and now you have to expedite ship things? That's a hidden cost. So to help kind of pad your pricing so you're not having as big of an economic shock when you're having these unexpected things happen, you have hidden costs. And so hidden costs, the standard is 10%. So if it says hidden costs, that's 10%. And then what gets tricky is there's two different ways you can do hidden costs. And I always find that my students are usually divided 50-50 on which way they prefer. And remember, with the math, the best way to do the math is the one that makes sense for your brain. So if you're like, okay, I like to do it option A, do that. If you like to do option B, do that. So Let's take the question from last week. So last week, we had a question that was saying, find the selling price, and here was the information. We have the coffee is $1, labor is $2, said adding costs, and then the markup factor was 2.5. So this one we went over last week, so definitely listen to last week's podcast episode, but this is prime pricing. And so what I want to do first is I want to add up my raw food cost, and labor. So when I add those up, I have $3 in costs, And I want to increase this by 10% to add that hidden cost of 10%. So there's two different ways you can do this. Like I said, here's option one. I can find 10% of $3. So I would do three times 0.1 and get 30 cents. And then say, okay, well, 10% 10% is 30 cents, so I'm going to add that back to $3, and then that's going to give me $3.30 total. Option B, which is what I like to do, is instead of having to find 10% and add it back, I just do $3, the total cost, times 1.1, which is 110% because that's going to stop me from having to do the added step of finding 10% and then adding it back. So if I take three times 1.1, I'm still going to get my $3.30. So both methods will get you to the correct answer. What I want you guys to think of is which one makes most sense for you. For me, like I said, I like to do hidden costs with the 1.1 just because it's one, it's just one less step, but you got to do what makes most sense for you. Next question I have is which medications should you avoid with grapefruit juice? And so what's tricky with the grapefruit juice is grapefruit juice has a lot of interactions because it can do one of two things. You can take the medication and it can cause there to be too much of the drug in the body because breakdown isn't happening quick enough. Or it can cause there to be not enough breakdown of the drug in the body and you end up with too little of the drug. And a fun little nutrition medication medical history lesson here is the reason why they found this, and this will tie into the answer for you guys. Now me, you know I love medical history. It's so fun. Um, so what you want to be what this fun story is, is so when they were doing a double blind placebo on it was a blood pressure medication, one group was getting the placebo, which was a sugar pill, and then one group was getting the actual blood pressure medication. And the researchers were like, oh, well, they could probably taste the difference of the pill. So what's a drink that they could take it? pills with, so they wouldn't notice which one they're getting. And they went with grapefruit juice. But what they found is that, yes, it masked the taste, but the patients that were getting the blood pressure medication, which should be lowering their blood pressure from high to normal, it was actually from the grapefruit juice, they were finding that the drug was actually, you know, being kind of released in the body too quickly so there was too much of it at one time, too high of a dose in the body one time. And it was bringing the blood pressure from high to normal to low. So that's kind of how they first discovered like, oh my goodness, there's, you know, issues with the grapefruit juice. And so you want to avoid grapefruit juice with statins, but also, like I said, with blood pressure medications are kind of the most common ones. And I had a conversation with a student last week and she was saying, like, is it all citrus juices? No, just the grapefruit juice. So really, if you're on more than one medication, you really shouldn't be, you know, drinking grapefruit juice. And especially, right, like, we don't serve grapefruit juice in the hospital for this reason, too. So, you know, it's the juice more than the fruit, because what you want to be thinking is, think of how much, like, juice is in one grapefruit. That's not eight ounces of juice. So if you have a patient who's like, oh, can I never have half a grapefruit? No, you definitely can, right? But just don't have a large amount of grapefruits. Okay, next one we have is a math one. So it is the food service operates, a food service department operates at 35% cost. If the menu item has a raw food cost of $1.25, and it takes an employee 45 minutes at $6 per hour to prepare, what is the traditional selling price? And so this week, I've been having a lot of talks with my students about math, right? And if you haven't already taken it, you, the math boot camp is the class I recommend for those of you guys who are like Dina. So what we want to be thinking here is they're giving us a lot of information. But before I go kind of sprinting into my question, I want to say, what am I trying to solve for? What is the traditional selling price? And with our selling prices, we have three. We have prime, traditional slash factor, and then cost plus. So I want to pause and say, okay, traditional selling price is my favorite because we just need two pieces of information. Food cost percentage and raw food cost. So knowing that should make me pause and say, I don't need to know anything about the labor here. I don't need that. So I want to think about my factor pricing method, my equation. And the first thing we have to do there is find the markup factor. So we do 100 divided by my food cost percentage as a whole number. So 100 divided by, 100 divided by 35. And this is gonna get find my market factor of 2.86 if we round up. And then I'm gonna multiply that times my raw food cost, $1.25. And that's gonna give me a selling price of $3.57. So, or you could also get $3.58 if you round it a little bit differently. So this one is tricky because, again, they're giving you a lot of fluff. But what's going to stop you from kind of going crazy and finding, you know, like, oh, what's the labor cost and everything is that you took a second to pause and go, okay, traditional selling price, what equation is that? And that is why you need to know your equations But you guys know if you've taken any of the math classes, if you are just memorizing the equations, you're not going to be able to kind of move around them like we did in this question too. So definitely if you struggle with the pricing, definitely take the math boot camp. That's a really great one. Next question is one. We've seen this a a few weeks ago, Um, but this student was saying, this question is a question from Pocket Prep where she's feeling frustrated because other sources is telling me that the answer should be um, job specification and not job description. Can you help explain this? And this is a perfect example of a great question to ask on the page because if you're seeing sources kind of say different things, you wanna make sure you're clar- just clarifying them. So here's the question. Which of the following would be included in the job description? Options are benefits, Salary, mission statement, or required license. So I want to be thinking here, what is the difference between my job analysis, job description, and job specification? And what I like to think of when I teach this, and this you can find in the management bundle, this is in the HR class, is with my job description, I like to think about my job description is what I would put on an app. So like the most recent job I hired for was for my fall intern. And on the job description, right, I put, you know, briefly kind of a few bullet points about the role, what would they be doing, but I also put the qualifications for the job too, which were that they needed to be currently in a nutrition program or planning to apply to a dietetic internship or master's program. And, that would kind of match the required license. The required license is going to be what is in the job description because maybe I have, you know, if I wanted a diet tech and I said you need to be a diet tech or for, you know, like it, whenever I hire a second dietitian for my private practice, right, I could say you need to be licensed in Massachusetts and New Hampshire too. So the required license is going to be in the job description. What we want to be thinking about for the job specification is the job specification is kind of helping you pick from the candidates who, you know, you could have multiple candidates who all meet the job description, right? So like when I hire for my internship each year, I always have a really difficult time picking people because the people I everyone I interview and I tell them this too. Everyone I interview meets the entire job description is qualified for the job. So after I interview them, I kind of compare them to my specification. And my specification is helping me to kind of say, like, what are the preferred things? What do I kind of rank over the others, you know? And so that the job specification is used internally. It's helping you to pick. It's helping you to kind of pick the best candidate two, beyond the job description. Everyone, you know, like you said, everyone who meets the job description, you know, could be getting interviewed, but how do you pick between people who went to the same school or are the same grade? You know, things like that, too. Okay, next one is which equation is the least accurate for measuring resting energy expenditure in those with liver cirrhosis? So, One of my favorite mnemonics I have is that we hate Harris. Harris Harris-Benedict is one of the least accurate predictive equations. And it's terrible when you're doing, um, when you're doing overweight or obese patients, the accuracy goes down, goes down a lot. So typically for like our floor patients, we'll use the Mifflin St. George. The Penn State would be for like our, for our ICU patients is who we'd want to be using it for. Next question we have from a student is when you measure functional um, manipulative skills, which domain of learning are you analyzing? So we have conceptual, effective, human, and psychomotor. And here what we're thinking is the answer is psychomotor because it's not only the thinking, but actually having them doing it. You know, that's what we're saying with the the functional is them actually doing the skill. So with that one, psychomotor would be the best. And the last thing I have for you guys for the class night is less of a question, but more of a tip. For what do you do when there's a topic that you're like, oh my goodness, this is a trouble area for me. Should I go back and, you know, reread and rewrite all my notes. You know, what do I do when I hit a topic that's really trouble area for me? And what I like to recommend to my students, and if you're in the signature course, you'll get some of these throughout the course too, is to kind of look at all the information that's on a topic and gather it and put it in what I like to call a quick guide. So this doesn't have to be anything beautiful, but what this is, is kind of take making a Word document or like a Google doc, whatever you want to be doing, And kind of bringing in pictures, definitions, like all the things you need to really help you understand the topic. And this is a great tool to have because, again, especially if you're using the inman, there's no pictures, right? So making yourself kind of a little supplemental quick guide to go with your inman is really, really great if you're using that as your primary resource. If you're in my course, like I said, you'll get a bunch of study guides and quick guides to go with it. But on the Facebook page this week, I did give you guys all access to my food science quick guide. So if you're one of the people who um, only is on the podcast and not on the Facebook page and you want access to the quick guide, feel free to email me at at gmail.com and just put subject line food science quick guide and I'll know to send it to you. Otherwise, if you're on the Facebook page, just do a search for Quick Guide and you'll find the Food science Quick Guide. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana RD, every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, DanaJFNutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes, as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.